join me in prayer this morning? Father, we are mindful of the fact that you are God and beside you there is none other. And our world and those around us and even at times we see ourselves and our own families in a world of hurt because we have chosen a way that is not your way. Lord, we ask for forgiveness and cleansing. We ask for healing and restoration this morning. And Father, this morning as we come to what would be an unpopular text and a difficult text only because of the hardness of hearts, we ask that as your word wounds us, it would also heal us. You do that in, by, and through your precious Holy Spirit, present in the body of Christ now. Father, we bless you. We love you in Christ's name. Let the church say amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 5 as we continue with the Sermon on the Mount. Probably one of the um, least popular sermons on a Sunday morning, but ice guard. So um, what did Jesus say about divorce? What did Jesus say about divorce? Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Before I get into this, let me just lay a little bit of groundwork as we did last week. I want to remind you of some key principles that will guide us through the text this morning. And I don't want you to wig out on me. I want you to stay focused and knit in. And I recognize in the room that there are a myriad of families that have been affected, are being affected by this very thing. So let me say this to you right up front. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves you. And Jesus always leads the right way to people. Jesus always leads the right way to people. Even when his commands are difficult and they make us terribly uncomfortable, he is still leading the right way for his glory and his honor. This morning, with this text in view, we're going to see that Jesus is concerned about women. He's concerned about children. He's concerned about men and families and singles and our society. He wants to keep families intact. He, he wants to heal broken people. He is faithful and just, hear this, to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We are weak, but he is strong. The scripture reading that Pastor Norm shared with us, a little unusual, seems like a change of pace for me because I typically have the sermon text read for that portion of our liturgy. But what we did this morning, that's supporting text, but it's actually still a part of the sermon. The sermon this morning is from Matthew 5, 31, 32, and Matthew 19. We're going to get to Jesus' exchange with that Pharisee in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles open now, if you don't have one, grab a pew Bible. And uh, if you don't have that, feel free to open up your 
uh, phone, your smart device, and follow along on Uversion. You can find us there. If you go under events, you can follow along with the sermon notes there. Just do me a favor. After you load the notes and you see all the answers and see where I'm going, don't get up and leave. Hang out for just a few minutes. Let me try to finish, okay? Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Let me read it to you. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the same Jesus that said, Blessed are the poor, the same Jesus that said, Blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, and the merciful, and the pure, now says, It was also said, verse 31, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, if we were doing a drop-down menu of the Jesus messages that we would pick and choose, this would be at the bottom. And if it was on a website, it would probably not be the one with the most hits. Got it? It is still the Word of God. It's still profitable. And it's still Jesus speaking in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus knew the crowd that he was addressing in the moment he said these words. He knew the Pharisees that would address him later on in Matthew 19. He knew those that would hear his words and be around the Pharisees. He knew that you and I would be here this Sunday morning in the heart of South End Charlotte under the authority of God's word as he deals with the subject matter here. He sees you, he knows you, and he is for you this morning. Be encouraged by that. For what it's worth in our contemporary culture, this passage is often minimized, marginalized, or worse yet, skipped altogether. I don't know if I'm brave or just uh, not smart enough. I'm not sure which it is. You'll tell me after the sermon, I'm sure. But divorce is painful. It's difficult. It brings so much pain and heartache with the word for those for whom it's in the rearview mirror or for those who are heading into it like a head-on collision. I'm a child of divorce. My parents split when I was very young. I was in kindergarten and the earliest memories I have of my parents together are them screaming at each other in the house. That's the only memory I have of my mom and dad together. Shortly after kindergarten, they split up, and I would spend one week here and one week here. Then they thought it was better for me to speak two weeks here and two weeks there, and it was just weird, not right. My parents weren't Christians. Later on in life, we would get it to where I was with one parent mostly and then just visiting one parent some on the weekend, but I know what it's like to run into it head on. And at 44 years old, to still be dealing with some of it. So I'm not coming to you this morning from a position of theory, but from reality. Jesus was very direct and he's very succinct here. It's funny, he's elaborate in some areas and then he's very to the point here. There's a reason for that. I'm going to do my best to unpack that this morning. He gets right to the point and his point is the right way to people. It seems abrasive, especially in our culture where there's nothing wrong with anything anymore. And as a society, then and now, many people are only interested in the details of a divorce, as if if they focus on that, that's the best way to mitigate damage or do as little harm as possible. 
But we have to start from the beginning. If you want to try to figure something out, let's get back to the root. You sit down with a counselor. They start a series of questions, and they're trying to get you back. Let's see where this all began, and it begins in Genesis. I'm going to give you three headers this morning, some encouragement, I hope significant encouragement, for everybody in the room, healthy marriages, marriages in trouble and those who have been or are in the process of going through a divorce. For those of you online, I pray that you'll stay tuned for the next few moments as we give our attention to the healing balm of God's word. But it's gonna wound us first. Your first header this morning, getting in to this covenant relationship. God's design for marriage. Getting in to the covenant of marriage was God's design. It wasn't the churches. It wasn't governments. They didn't come up with this idea for a civil union and to make it fancy and religious. Nope, this was God's idea. Let's, let's get into it. The, it might help us. Listen, the Bible says in Psalm 11:3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So let's look at the foundations here. Genesis 1:27. You don't have to flip there, but let's spend a few minutes in Genesis. I'll try to move quickly because we touched some of these last week. Genesis 1:27 clearly says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I don't have time to uh, chase every little rabbit that pops up this morning, but can I just tell you, about 25 years ago, the created, there was one aspect of this verse that was pretty controversial because of the public school system and folks purporting the theory of evolution, diametrically opposed to creation, and that was controversial, right, to say, God created. Oh, you're one of those creationists. Who knew that <laughs> the rest of the verse would now be controversial? Male and female, he created them. That's the world we're living in. It's very important. Genesis 1 gives us this bird's eye view of the creation account of man and other things, a six-day creation. And then in Genesis 2, we come in for a tighter shot. The camera zooms in a bit on God's crowning glory of all creation. And what is God's crowning glory of all creation? It's not cats. Sorry. It's people. You and I were made in the image of God. I said it recently, I'll say it again. I know we try to escape and get away from everything because we want to be close to God, but you're never closer to God than when you're around his fellow image bearers. God designed us to be in community together. So we zoom in in chapter two. The man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, corny preacher joke here, you ready? You knew I had one for you. Friend of mine says, you know why Adam named her woman? Because as soon as he saw her, he went, whoa, man. Sorry, moving on. <laughs> Next verse, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Go back to the previous verse for me, verse 24 there, Mark, if you don't mind. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Let me bring your attention to those couple of verbs there, and I've got a slide to illustrate it for you, but in the old King James, it was they shall leave, shall cleave, shall be. Now that'll preach easier than these because they sound similar, so let me give them to you this way. You see, leaving the mother and father. You see, holding fast to his wife, and you see them becoming one flesh. Let me expand it just a tiny bit. As they leave, they break away from the shelter 
of that paternal home, their own family unions. As they cleave or hold fast to one another, they bond in such a way, but the word here is like metal being fused together or permanently affixed together, glued together, fastened for permanence is the picture of the word here. And as they become one flesh, watch this, they're going to be something together that they can't be as individuals. Now, you may be going to the movie scene where the Tom Cruise is the actor says, you, right? You com- That's my Tom Cruise impression. You, we're the same height, by the way. You complete me. I know you mistake me for him all the time. You complete, right? No, that's not what's happening here. We're completing Christ. But there is something distinct about when a man and woman come together as God ordained in marriage, they become something together that they cannot be individually. If you look at this foundation, this blueprint for marriage, you'll notice right here, there's no consideration for there to be a separation. There's no consideration there for a divorce. The husband and wife are welded together. This is important. I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments. So why do people get divorced? If you think that people that get divorced get divorced because they have problems, And the people that don't get divorced don't get divorced because they don't have problems. I have a question. Are you crazy? Everybody's got problems. Married people have problems. Are you kidding me? Married couples have problems. The circumstances and specifics may vary slightly from one to the other. The colors and flavors might be many, but the counselors in the room this morning will tell you that essentially they can pretty much all be characterized in a small list of the same type of problems. Y'all, everybody's got issues in the tissues. It's just the way we work. But there comes a time in a married couple's life where they have to recalibrate back to the foundation in the beginning and recognize that they are bonded together. There's no problem too big for God to solve. There's no mountain too high or valley too low that we cannot scale together as long as we commit to Christ every day. My wife and I, when we have given premarital counseling before, before a wedding, we'll talk about the couples. It's an old picture. It's nothing new. But essentially, if you imagine a pyramid, you've got a man and a woman here, and the closer they draw to Christ, the closer they'll go together. They're pulling the same direction toward Christ. They can draw close to one another, committing to Christ every day and committing to one another like the Bible suggests, preferring the other over themselves and husbands loving their wives in a way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and mutual submission and respect as we draw closer to the Lord together. It's not easy It requires daily death to self, but it's the best way. Ephesians 5, I read earlier, why is it so important? Why does marriage matter to God? Why does the church care? Well, because there's more to it than just your satisfaction. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then the summary verse, 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that this marriage refers to Christ and the church. We give you gospel resources to hand out out there if you need help sharing the gospel or you have an, enca- engage, an, an encounter sorry, with someone and you want to engage them with something, a lead behind. We have some gospel resources out there. But one of the greatest gospel tracks for the community and the world and your family and your neighbors to see is your marriage. 
according to the Bible. Doesn't mean it's perfect, but it means the Lord shines through the cracks of our brokenness. So there's God's design from the Bible. Marriage, a covenant of marriage. Getting in was God's design. Getting out, the second header this morning, was man's design. Getting in was God's design. Getting out was man's design of divorce. I'm gonna hit this from two angles this morning, gently but directly, um, and then we'll navigate to the hope and the healing that we find in Christ. If you look at Deuteronomy 24, I'm gonna ask you to do that. I'll get to the verse in just a moment, Mark, but if you grab your Bibles and just flip back Old Testament after uh, Genesis, it's at the end of the first five books of Genesis, so you got Genesis, Exodus, what comes next, y'all? Then, then, that's it, 24, chapter 24, it's toward the back of that. If you get to Deuteronomy, chapter number 24, I'll come to the verse in just a minute. Let me tell you what Jesus is dealing with. When, when Moses, when God had this scripture written and Moses is writing down some of these laws and provisions, I need you to understand that he is addressing some things. He's addressing uh, something that's happened and it's happening at such a scale uh, that the judicial and sacrificial laws concerning them needed to be addressed. How could they keep from doing further harm or damage or sin or how did this preclude them from anything? And so Moses is addressing the fallout from these certificates of divorce. But society then and now looks and says, ah, see, it's right here in the Bible. I have a permission slip to do this. And many still see that today. So, so Jesus begins engaging these disciples. I had you turn to Deuteronomy. I promise I'm gonna get there. Let, let, me, let me give you our current judicial system. This may help you, it helped me. If it doesn't, hey, <laughs> just ignore it. Um, our, our judicial system today has judges that really find themselves, especially at the federal level, in two camps. That's not fair. There's all types of colors and, and flavors in between. But essentially, two camps. You have the um, strict constructionist or the textualists on one side and the originalists on the other side. Now, you've got to look at the definitions because they all kind of sound good, right? Well, original, yeah, that's... That sounds important and strict. I think I want a judge to be strict, but I want him to be merciful, which it has to do with what the law says and how do we treat what the law says. The, the strict judges the, or the conservative judges, if you will, they, they interpret the law. They think the law means what the law says. Imagine that. They think the text actually was written on purpose and means what it says. The, the liberal side of justice, which leads to activism, thinks the law is completely subject to interpretation. And it means whatever it should mean, according to that judge, in the moment for the cir circumstance and situation. That's, that's an unfair oversimplification of the two. But, but essentially, when, when you follow that second logic, the liberal judges, the originalists, that think it's a living document, the Constitution in their hands, to rewrite on the fly, that's the kind of activism that gave us Roe versus Wade. You have two generations now of ill-informed citizens in the United States referring to abortion as a constitutional right. There's no such language or hint of language in the Constitution for somebody to kill an unborn baby. It's not there. So I would say to my liberal friends who I disagree with, who are advocating, who are pro-abortion, uh, 
to stop saying it's a constitutional right because you look silly, like it's not there. It was judicial activism that made this acceptable in the public zeitgeist. Why are you doing that? I thought you stayed away from politics. Because there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day as it related to the certificate of divorce thing. There were two rabbis that kind of had a hold on everybody. Let's look at the text first. I'll give you the two schools of thought, and then you'll see why Jesus' words were so specific as they were. Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that's the key phrase, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and then it goes on and she becomes another man's wife and he starts working through all of this nuance to what's gonna happen. This, this phrase that says, and she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Here are the two schools of thought that existed. There was the conservative school of thought. That was the school of Shammai. Um, he's the rabbi that kind of coined this. You ready? He thought that phrase and interpreted that phrase to be limited to marital misconduct. So physical intimacy, for the sake of little ears in the room, physical intimacy outside of the marriage covenant. Got it? That was the Shammai school. And then there was the school of Hillel. I have abbreviated this substantially for your consumption this morning, but this makes for almost, it's sad and comical at the same time. Himmel, <laughs> wow, um, it was so widely accepted even after Jesus' teaching that when the Mishnah was written in around year 200, it had recorded all of these permeances of divorce allowances by the school of Hillel. Listen to what he says. Uh, here are some of the ridiculous grounds for divorce uh, that made the covenant of marriage meaningless by the school of Hillel. You ready? The Mishnah stated that a man could divorce his wife if she were barren, if she became a deaf mute, if she had epilepsy, tetanus, a wart, a wart, leprosy, if she failed to perform certain services in the home, if her husband thought she was lazy, if she had a head that was shaped less than what he thought was perfect, it actually gave descriptions like a wedge-shaped head, and I'm thinking, what? Anyway, uh, if she had poor posture, if uh, she had bushy eyebrows, only one eyebrow, too thin of an eyebrow, if her eyes were too big, too small, uh, the list of physical traits will make you angry at the objectification of women in this religious document. If she ate something that he had forbidden her to eat, if the in-laws moved in too close, I don't know, uh, in the same city to be near their daughter, if she burned his supper, he could get a certificate of divorce. If he found somebody he thought was prettier than his wife, he could ask for a certificate of divorce. This was allowed. And, and, and then we come to Matthew 19, right? We, we see these personal preferences that are trumping a covenant commitment. I mean, can I just say something? Those seem ridiculous, but in the 21st century, do we treat it any less lightly? No fault? There's no such thing. No fault. Now we lump all this into irreconcilable differences. I got news for you. When God created man and he created woman, he created irreconcilable differences that Christ brings together through his Holy Spirit. That's the only hope we've got. Jesus' teaching here is radical. He doesn't say, if there's adultery, get a divorce. He says, you are compounding sin if you divorce for any reason other than adultery. You're making a terrible thing even worse. 
Jesus' teaching was radical then and it's radical now. Word gets out and then we find ourselves in Matthew 19, that text that was already read. The Pharisees come up to him and they're like, hey, can we get divorced for any reason? And look at his response. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Is this ringing a bell with anybody? And so they're no longer two but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage was God's idea. Separation, man's idea. They say, can we do it for any reason? And he goes back to Genesis, not to Deuteronomy takes them back to the foundation. Watch this. They were interested in a certificate of divorce. Jesus was interested in the covenant of marriage. Make no mistake, as your pastor, as the elders of this church, we are interested, we will do all we can to strengthen the covenant of marriage as a body. Some people are looking for a way out. God wants to help you find a way forward. Jesus explained, Moses had to do that because of the sin of your heart. In fact, you find Deuteronomy, if you read it and know the context, you'll find that that law was written to protect the woman from frivolous divorces that the school of Hillel then interpreted later and also character assassinations. Jesus is saying the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ permitted divorce on one ground and one ground only, marital unfaithfulness. He permitted, not prescribed. So now let's take a final point this morning. Moving forward. God's way is best. Right? God's way is best. This may be uncomfortable, but I don't think, I don't sense any pushback in the room this morning. God's way is best. Listen to me carefully. While marriage is made in heaven, it's worked out here on earth. Wouldn't it be great if we, there was an autopilot switch? I mean, if one of you counselors like, could market that as an app, there's an app for that autopilot for healthy marriage. You just turn the switch on, put the little noise effect on in the house, and everybody you know, gets along all the time. There's no autopilot. It takes work. Yes, it was created in heaven, but it is worked out here on earth. I want to make a few statements this morning as we talk about God's way being best, and I hope that you're encouraged and some clarity comes this morning. The first thing I would say is this. We are for biblical marriage. We're for biblical marriage. Now some of you see that and your mind, unfortunately, because of the age in which we live, immediately go to politics. That is the furthest thing from what I'm talking about this morning. It's the furthest thing from my discussion. While we rally around something like this in an age of confusion, I don't mean that it's just marriage is between one man and one woman for life and it's ordained before the church and before government, all that things. What I'm saying is marriage is important to God. Jesus believed in and reinforced the sanctity of marriage. And that statement alone is counter-cultural enough. But when I say we are for biblical marriage, here's what I mean. I mean that we as a church are going to endeavor to build one another up and not tear down. We're going to try to encourage one another, to protect one another, to engage with one another, to hold one another accountable. Single, married, divorced, widowed, you name it. We want to be united as a body to care for one another, all for the glory of Christ. 
And I'm going to say this, and I believe this with great conviction this morning. I believe one of the greatest deterrents to the fruit of divorce in the church is the root of biblical fellowship within the body. The more time we spend with each other as a body engaged in biblical, gospel-revealing fellowship enables us to stop pretending everything's perfect when it isn't and for friends to pull us aside and lovingly help us when we stumble and fall. The Bible says you that are spiritual, when somebody falls, you help them. The problem is, and I I don't want to speak for Pastor Darren, but he and I have discussed this. By the way, I appreciate when a founding pastor sends you an email early in the week and says, I see the text you're coming to. I'm praying for you this week. Pastor Darren may not have used these words. Pastor Pete, a friend of mine in Tennessee, has said this before. The problem is many people come to us when all the eggs are broken on the floor and say, hey, fix this. We, we, want, we want these eggs back together. <laughs> um, Biblical fellowship, the way the Bible describes that koinonia, us being together in community, deeper than just, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's the uh, race? And uh, us talking about just politics and firearms and all the things. I'm just talking about the ladies. No, just kidding. But, but getting the conversation beyond the surface and into the body, I think is a great deterrent. I think it's an incredible tool that we underutilize. The second thing I would say, statement we'll make, is we are against divorce. We're not against people. We're against divorce. Divorce may be the norm in the culture, but it must never be the norm in our churches. As a community of New Covenant believers who have received a new heart through the gospel, we possess the Holy Spirit and the power that we need to remain faithful and to honor our marriage vows that offers, that God gives to us that others may not be able to do. This is a supernatural power that we have access to. And it's the result of our lives in Christ that now characterize us as a part of the bride. Danny Aiken said it beautifully. Though divorce is permitted in certain circumstances, it's never commanded. Even when there's biblical grounds for divorce, God's heart is clearly for reconciliation and restoration, and so is ours. Adulterers should repent and do all they can to fight for a healthy, holy marriage, and we will help you. Jesus expects divorce to be the rare exception and not the rule in the community of faith. If there's confusion, one other statement under we're against divorce, if there's confusion about what the Bible says about divorce in churches, it's not because the Bible is unclear. It's very clear. Jesus is crystal clear. He's crystal clear when he sets it out in the Sermon on the Mount. He's crystal clear when the Pharisees try to call him out and trip him up. He's crystal clear. Paul in 1 Corinthians gives some practical amplification to this, but he only adds that if a believing spouse is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, then the believer is no longer bound to the deserter. That's about it. I recognize it's 2021 and I know some of your minds are wondering, well, what if this happens and what if that happens and what if somebody's in physical danger? Of course, if somebody's in physical danger, we want to rescue them and spare them from physical danger, right? That's a matter in and of itself. But we are against divorce. We're for biblical marriage, but I want you to take comfort and encouragement by this last point. Remember I said his word wounds, but it also heals. We are for one another. In the great discipleship text of Titus 2, this is why I believe biblical fellowship is so important. 
women and men are ministering to those younger than them and part of the reason they're doing that is to build healthy families. To teach young women and young men how to love their spouse in the way that Christ loved the church. I'm serious. We need to know one another's stories. We need to go deeper with each other in order to implement the one another's of the New Testament. You've got to stop sitting in the same place, church family. Move your seats. Meet some different people. Chat with some different folks outside of church. Start reorienting your Sunday so that you can linger longer after the service and make connections. That's why we spend time on the playground together. And the weather's nice, y'all. We will celebrate healthy marriages. We will celebrate our single brothers and sisters who are holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ and living pure and chaste lives and discipling other men and women for the glory of God. This requires more of us than just showing up on a Sunday. I want to give a note quickly to those who are divorced or who are affected by divorce. We are for one another. There are no second-class Christians. There are no second-class members. No second-class attenders at Grace Covenant Church. Divorce on unbiblical grounds is sin. But this Bible that declares that also says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God cleanses sinners. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There are no scarlet letters in a box that we put out on people here. That's not how the church works. The church shouldn't be a showcase for saints. It should be a hospital for sinners. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. As a church, we're here to help people in need. Children are devastated and disoriented by divorce. Even when mom and dad think they've got everything worked out, I want you to know something. We're here for the kids. We're here for the mom struggling. We're here for the dad struggling. Men and women alike can believe that uh, the lie that they're somehow second-class citizens of the kingdom. I believe I've addressed that. That's not true. We'll help you recognize lies from truth from God's word. Jesus doesn't take a weak view of sin or a light view of marriage, and neither do we. But Jesus does not take a pharisaical view of sinners, nor does he ignore broken people who reach out to him for help, and neither do we. I'm going to ask Julia to come and the musicians to get set this morning. 
I want to illustrate this. I wish I could come up with stuff like this on my own sometimes. I cannot. I'm grateful for writers and preachers who have. My final picture this morning. Imagine divorce as a dangerous precipice, a dangerous cliff, and it's called divorce. Our job as the church, we as the elders and the members of Grace Covenant Church, we're going to build a wall as high and as strong as we can. And we're going to say loudly to everybody who's approaching that precipice, stop, stop, don't do it. Danger ahead, danger ahead, don't, 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 don't. And we're going to stay there and we're going to guard the wall. But we also know our own hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. So for those who, for whatever reason, find themselves over the edge. We're also stationed at the bottom, ready to minister to those who are hurting, to show them the love and the grace of God that every single one of us not only has received, but needs every single moment of our lives. What did Jesus say about divorce? He's saying that marriage was God's idea, not divorce. He's pro-life, he's pro-family, and he's pro-marriage. It should be extremely rare, but when it happens, we that are spiritual will be there to help those who are hurting. I wonder this morning, are you headed toward the precipice? Stop. Reach out to somebody, let us help. Have you gone over the cliff? You ask the Lord to cleanse you. There's help and healing in Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sin. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of church Grace Covenant wants to be, saying don't do it, but being there to rescue those who are broken. Let's pray together. Father, it's a challenge for us to be still and to quiet the noise of culture and media and all the things competing for our attention. Thank you for moments like this when we can gather as a family and be still and know that you're God. Be still, my soul, as we worship you now, as we lift our voices in singing, God, we pray that you would wash us, cleanse us, refresh us in our walk with you, Lord. Help us to recommit to the things that you know and have clearly communicated are important, God, to run from the things that we're supposed to run from and to restore those around us who are hurting. We bless you in Jesus' name. Let the church say amen. Let's all stand together and lift our voices.